Good morning and welcome to the Sunset Church of Christ once again. Uh, many of you have grown accustomed to seeing Jim Hallway in this spot over the last three months. Uh, but Jim and Catherine are enjoying a much-deserved vacation uh, visiting their children and grandchildren. And so Jim and Catherine, if you're watching this morning, uh, we hope you're enjoying uh, those grandbabies and we can't wait to see you back here in Miami again. And we'll be praying for your travels as you return to us uh, soon. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Brian Bergman. I am one of the deacons here at the Sunset Church of Christ, and it is my honor to be able to fill in for Jim today and, and help bring a lesson uh, to help, help us engage a little bit more with God's Word today and, and have a deeper understanding, hopefully, uh, of our faith. Uh, before I get started, I just want to remind everyone, if you have children, in a few moments, our children's minister, Julie Bergman, is going to be posting some questions so that the kids can also engage with the sermon today. So if you have children, watch for those questions and try to engage in a conversation with them uh, so that they can also grow through this study this morning as well. Have you ever thought about what your name means? Uh, my name is Brian, and I looked it up, and my name means noble. Now, that's not something my parents ever really talked with me about. Uh, they never told me that we chose this name for you for this reason. They never said that we chose this name because we want this name uh, to shape your character, to give you an identity, to, to help you focus on uh, what you're going to do. In our American culture, we don't think about names a lot. We don't think about what names mean. Uh, we choose names based on whether they, have a, they sound good to us or whether they um, have some emotional connection to maybe a family member or another person. But we don't think about their, their meaning. Now, we do kind of sometimes laugh at people who give their children unusual names. Uh, you may remember a few years ago, Gwyneth Paltrow named her child Apple, and the, the media uh, had some fun with that. And then more recently, Kanye West and Kim Kardashian named their daughter North, so that her name is Northwest. And again, we as a culture kind of laughed at that. Uh, but if a name is not unusual, we don't really give much thought to the meaning of the name. That's not true in the ancient Hebrew culture. In the time of Genesis, which we're studying today from the book of Genesis chapter 18, Names are important. Names convey something about the circumstances in which a child was born, how they came to be, or maybe they express a hope-for destiny or a character trait or maybe even a character flaw. Well, this morning we're talking about the promise of the birth of Isaac. And in the Hebrew language, Isaac means laughter. And we're told that Isaac was given this name because first his father, Abraham, and then his mother Sarah both laughed at the idea that they were going to have a child. Imagine what it must have been like for Isaac to walk around carrying his name, in his name, a reminder of his parents laughing in the face of God. Do you think that shaped Isaac? Do you think that changed his outlook on life? Do you think that changed his outlook on God? can't imagine what that must have been like for Isaac, for his name to literally mean that his parents laughed in the face of God. We're going to talk about why that was in just a moment. But before we can actually get into the promise given in Genesis 18, we have to remind ourselves of the background. So in Genesis chapters 1 through 11, we get a really big, broad picture of what's going on as God begins his work in the world. And we get the creation story. We get the story of Noah and the flood. We have some genealogies. We have the story of the Tower of Babel. All before we start to narrow in and focus 
on this man, Abraham, and his wife, Sarah, and the family that they are eventually going to have. Now, at the end of the book, uh, chapter 11 in the book of Genesis, there is one of these genealogies where the author tries to connect us. How did we get from Noah to this man, Abraham, that God is going to choose? And so there's a list of names there, and, and it just repeats itself. This person had a son, lived this long, and had a whole bunch of other children. And on and on it goes in that pattern until we get to uh, Abraham. And when we we're first introduced to Abraham, we only know a few things about him. First, we know who his father is. We know who his brothers are. We know where he lives. We know he has a wife. And the author of Genesis is careful to tell us that his wife, Sarah, was barren. Up to this point in Abraham's life, he had not been able to have a child. At this point, he's 75 years old, and his wife, Sarah, is barren. But in Genesis chapter 12, God comes to Abraham and makes a promise to him. He says to Abraham, you are going to become the father of many nations, and you are going to go to this land that I am going to give you. And Abraham, without knowing where he was going, without knowing how the promise was going to be fulfilled, took his family, took his possessions, and followed where God told him to go. In the next chapter, in Genesis chapter 13, God again repeats the promise, you are going to be the father of many nations, and you're going to receive this land. And Abraham is just walking along faithfully, doing what he thinks God wants him to do. Then we come to Genesis chapter 15. God comes to Abraham again and reiterates his promises. Abraham, don't be afraid. I am your shield. I am your reward. I am your God. But this time, Abraham says to him, how can this be, God? I am still childless. A servant in my house is going to be my heir. And so God makes the promise a little bit more specific this time. He says, no, Abraham, you will be the father of many nations. And in fact, a son from your own body will be born to you. So Abraham continues. Well, in the next chapter, in chapter 16, Sarah, his wife, says, God has not allowed me to have a child. So what I want you to do is I want you to take my servant Hagar, and you're going to have a child with her, and maybe through her, this promise of a child will be fulfilled. And in fact, Hagar does have a child. Now, there's some jealousy between Sarah and Hagar, and they send Hagar away, and she's fleeing from the family. An angel comes to her and says, don't be distressed. God's going to protect you, and God's going to protect this child. And in fact, you're to give him the name Ishmael. Ishmael means he hears or God hears. And the angel said, God has heard your prayer, Hagar, and God's going to watch over you and take care of you. Now, it's interesting to me that the angel communicated Ishmael's name to Hagar, but we don't see the angel communicating with Abraham. Abraham simply accepted the name that Hagar said this child was going to have because maybe Abraham himself saw Ishmael as the answer to a prayer. Maybe Abraham himself thought God had heard my prayer and he is now fulfilling his promise to me through this son, Ishmael. Well, then we jump another chapter, Genesis chapter 17. God appears to Abraham once more. He wants to make a more firm, a deeper covenant with Abraham. And he says to Abraham, you're going to be the father of many nations. And he narrows the promise even more. This time he says, the line is going to come through Sarah, your wife. And Abraham looks at the situation. He says, I'm 99 years old. Sarah's 89 years old. How can this be? And in fact, in Genesis 17, in verse 17, it says, Abraham fell face down and laughed. 
Could it be possible that a son will be born to a man 100 years old, that a, woman, a child will be born to a woman the age of 90? And he looks to God and says, what about Ishmael? Isn't Ishmael the child of the promise? And think about this for just a moment. When Abraham was first called by God, he was 75. When Ishmael was born, he was 86. So we're 11 years from the time that the promise was made and the time the first son was born. Abraham is now 99 years old. It's been 13 years since Ishmael was born. In other words, he has lived more time since that first promise with a son than without a son. In his mind, Ishmael had been the answer to the prayer all along. Ishmael had been the fulfillment of the promise all along. And suddenly here's God saying, actually, Abraham, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a child through Sarah. And Abraham found that funny and he laughed. Then we come to chapter 18. This is our text for today. So beginning in chapter 18, verse 1, read with me. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, if I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way, now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered, do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three seahs of flour and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. And while they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Where is your wife, Sarah? They asked him. There in the tent, he said. Then the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already old and well advanced in years, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. So this is an interesting story in the history, uh, in the story arc uh, of Abraham. Uh, these three visitors come to him. And in the manner of his custom, of his time and his place that day, Abraham prepares an incredible feast for three men. And he feeds them and he takes care of them. And in the course of their meal, they ask about Sarah. Where is she? And Abraham says, she's there in the tent and, and, and Sarah's listening. And the men make a promise. God really makes a promise to Abraham and says, Sarah's going to have a son. About this time, one year from now, Sarah's going to have a son. And she responds the same way Abraham did. She laughs at the notion that somehow she's going to have a son. Laughter is an interesting human response. Uh, when you look at, at the, the sociological reasons for it, uh, scientists have been trying to figure out why humans laugh for, for, for a long time now. Uh, as, as more and more people believe in the idea of evolution, everything humans do has to have some sort of evolutionary purpose. But scientists have not been able to identify a purpose for laughter. It's just something humans do. And in fact, one, one researcher looked at laughter and recorded 
uh, about a thousand people laughing in different circumstances. And what he found is uh, only about 20% of the time people were, were laughing at something that's considered funny. The rest of the time, laughter was a response in fear or laughter was a response of nervousness or responding to an awkward situation. Here, Sarah's laughing. Maybe she's nervous. Maybe she's feeling awkward. Maybe she finds the promise humorous. Because she looks at herself, she says, I am old. Abraham is old. In fact, biologically, my body cannot do this anymore. Before, she was simply barren. Now, she is past the point where physically her body cannot do what it needs to do in order for her to give birth. Sarah is like many of us. When our circumstances don't match up with what we're told God's promises are, we have cognitive dissonance. And we wonder how can God fulfill the things that he said he's going to do. For example, we believe in the Bible that God says he forgives sin. And the human response is, but can God forgive me? Are my sins forgivable? Does God know what I've done? We believe that God hears prayers, and yet we pray prayers that are not answered the way we want them. We pray for sick people to be made well, and they're not healed. We pray for, 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 for storms to go away from us, and the storm still comes here. Lots of prayers go unanswered. And the Bible said God hears our prayers, and we have cognitive dissonance. Jesus prayed for unity in his church. Jesus has said that upon his return, all peoples will become one. And yet we look at the world around us and we see strife and division and racism and fighting and disunity. And we wonder, how can God make this happen? How can God bring this to be? When we look at Sarah, as I study her life, as I study these circumstances, what I've come to see is we need two things in order to continue our faith in God. The first thing we need is found here in Genesis chapter 18. God says to Sarah, even though she's not from, she's in the tent. God says to Sarah, is anything too hard for the Lord? The first thing we need to believe in order to maintain our faith is that God is able. God is able to do the things that he has promised. And this idea that nothing is impossible for God carries out through scripture. In fact, in a parallel to this story, when the angel appears to Mary in the book of Luke and says, you're going to have a son, Mary responds similarly to Sarah. Mary says, I'm a virgin. How can this be? And the angel says to her, nothing is impossible with God. Later on, when, when Jesus is talking about, in Matthew 19, about God saving the world through him, the disciples say, who can be saved? How can a rich person be saved? How can a person like this be saved? And Jesus' response is, with man, it's impossible. But with God, everything is possible. So the first thing we need to maintain our faith is a belief that God is able. But beyond believing that God is able, we need to have a second aspect of our faith. And this is found in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11 is that famous chapter on faith. And many of us know Hebrews 11.1, 1, where faith is defined as being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. The next line in that verse is, these are what the ancients were commended for. And the author goes through many of the, the great names of the Old Testament and shows us where they had faith. And in Hebrews 11, verse 11, talking about Abraham, the Hebrew writer says, By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age, and Sarah herself was barren, was, en was enabled to become a father, 
because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. So we need to believe that God is able. But the second thing we need to have in our faith is a belief that God is faithful to his promises, that God will do what he said he will do. I think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the story from the book of Daniel. They refused to bow down to the idols uh, that, that, that the king was telling them to bow down to. And because they refused to bow down, the king is threatening them. I'm going to cast you into this fiery furnace. You are going to be punished. You are going to be killed for not doing what I've commanded you to do. And the response of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is, Our God is able to save us from this fire. But even if he doesn't, we will still follow him. So they believed God was able, and they also believed God was faithful. And they believed that God was faithful so much, they were willing to accept that a negative outcome could happen for them. They were willing to give their life. Even if God did not save them, their faith was not shaken what God was going to do. And we see this in the Hebrew writer. So jumping down in Hebrews 11 a little bit further, verse 32, the writer says, And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. But some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they were put to death by the sword, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. See, the Hebrew writer wants us to see there are people in the story of God who had tremendous outcomes. They conquered kingdoms. They escaped death. They were saved miraculously. But the Hebrew writer also wants us to know that there are people in God's kingdom who did not have positive outcomes. They gave their lives. They were persecuted. They were poor. They were destitute. Both groups, though, maintained their faith. Both groups continued to believe that God was both able and faithful. Because at the end of the day, here's what the Hebrew writer says at the end of the chapter 11. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. In other words, all those who had the good outcomes, all those who conquered kingdoms, while their successes were great, and we talk about those as evidence of God's ability and faithfulness, the reality is their success then was not the promise. The ultimate promise is that God is going to redeem all of his people. God is going to redeem all of humanity. God is going to redeem the whole world. And that promise, we are all still waiting for it to be fulfilled. And the Hebrew writer says, God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. That's the ultimate promise, our perfection through God. And we're going to receive that at the same time they do. So I want to return to the story of Sarah for just a moment in Genesis 18. So she is laughing at God. She is doubting his ability. And yet we all know how the story turns out. A son Isaac was born to her 
a year later. And so when we turn to Genesis 21, we're told this. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what had been promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And so Sarah had the outcome she wanted. Because the reality is, God has made a promise. And when he needs to move the ball forward, when he needs to bring us closer to his promise, he is able to bring about circumstances in our life that will enable the fulfillment of his promise. Now, not everything we want in life is a part of his promise. So sometimes we may pray for someone to be healed when that cancer diagnosis comes, when the pink slip comes, when the mortgage comes due and there's not enough money in the bank account. We are tempted to say either God isn't able or the more realistic temptation is saying God isn't faithful. God is not being faithful to me in this moment. In that moment, that may not be what God needs to move his promise and his people forward. But what he asks us to do is to continue to believe that he is faithful. And so we look at the name that Isaac was given, laughter. At the end of the day, his name is not a reminder of the lack of faith that his parents had. In reality, his name is a reminder of the faithfulness of God. His name is a reminder that his parents did have faith in God. Sarah says out of her joy at having a child, I'm laughing now and people will laugh with me. In the 30th Psalm, the psalmist says, God has turned my mourning into dancing. He has taken my sackcloth off and clothed me in joy. And that's the real legacy that Isaac carried with him everywhere he went. That God is able to take the worst circumstances in our life. God is able to take our disappointments. God is able to take our failures. God is able to take our doubts. And he is able to turn them into evidence of his ability and his faithfulness. So as you go through this week, I encourage you to look for God's promises in Scripture. Find the things that he has truly promised. Hold on to those and know that he is able to fulfill them and that because he is faithful, he will fulfill them. Thank you for joining us this week. May God bless you as you go through your jobs, through your routines, through your family experiences this week. God bless you.